Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today's show 86. My guest today is Gero Lezon, and he is the Vice President of Dr. Bronner's, and I couldn't have thought of a better guest to have with me to dig deep, 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 deep into what fair trade really, really looks like um, than Gero, uh, and uh, given it's World Fair Trade Day this Saturday, May 12, it's just perfect timing, don't you think? Well, I may have orchestrated that a little bit, but I know you're going to love that chat. Now, speaking of fair trade, we have a wonderful new sponsor this month, being that the month of May has started, and that is Republica. Republica is a predominantly coffee business and started with Jacqueline Arias, uh, who is the founder, and she was a journalist for the ABC, went on a trip back to her homeland, Colombia, and was horrified after a bit of journalistic digging to see that people weren't treated with fair work conditions uh, when they were producing coffee for the rest of the world. And uh, she really wanted, she really got some fire into her belly. She started Republica Organic and it's a brilliant brand today, available really widely via supermarkets, but also in their online store if you prefer not to shop from supermarkets. And we have 30% off on the online store uh, and everything sold in a six pack. So if that feels like a little bit too much coffee to be buying at one time, I, mean, I have friends that would have no problem with that. Um, but, uh, you know, that might not be you. Why not use it as an excuse to catch up with a friend and place the order and then divvy it up over a coffee <laughs> um, together? But um, not only have we got 30% off on their online store, but we also have the chance for one of you guys over this month to win one whole year's worth of coffee. And, uh, and it's a super generous offer. So if you're a coffee lover, then, um, then this is absolutely the competition for you. And you, all you need to do is tell us why in the comments of any of the show notes this month. And Jacqueline will pick a winner at the end of that month. So good luck for that one. And thanks to Rep Republica for joining us as the sponsor this month. Now I'm keeping things to just one super special brand offer a month so that I don't go on and on before these podcasts, but I do like gifting um, these wonderful Lotox offers to our community. So there will be one each month. Um, but if you want to jump on board and become part of the Lotox Club through our Patreon community, you can do that. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on there. Just did a giveaway this week, just about to be recording a few bonus interviews, all sorts of cool stuff. I'm not going to go on about it now because there's too much to talk about. Um, but do go to the show notes today and follow the Patreon link to tell, so I can tell you in the little intro video that I've done there what you can do to jump on board and join the club. Now you have a beautiful new website for you now, lotoxlife.com. I am so thrilled with how it looks uh, and I'm so happy to welcome you there. It was the, um, the designers who did my upcoming book, uh, who, whose design I just fell in love with straight away. As soon as I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I've always wanted my brand to be and always how I've wanted to welcome people into you know, our, our virtual home that is lotoxlife.com. And so I had to bring it over there as well. And my beautiful friend, Kelly Exeter, who's such a talented designer, as well as being talented at so many other things, um, who you might know from the straight and curly podcast, she brought it all together. And, uh, and I'm, I really just think it looks fantastic. So a huge shout out to Northwood Green, um, the designers of both my book 
and the website uh, look and feel. It's um, something I've wanted for a long time to be able to provide lists and resources and shopping recommendations and um, and uh, things like template letters to help you start conversations around Roundup in parks, around food additives in daycare, around air freshener in your bathroom at work, all these sorts of things you can now download in our free resources to help you start those conversations. There's low-tox jobs. So if you're a business hearing this and you find it really hard to find staff who are on board with conscious living and caring for people and planet, whether you're a a naturopathic practice or a low-tox brand or a food company or a farm, whatever it might be, you might want to check out low-tox jobs um, on the jobs tab because I'm really passionate here about starting to connect people who care about all this stuff with the businesses who desperately need their skills, but not only their skills, the cultural fit as well. That's how we're going to grow past being a niche, I reckon. Um, so do check out the website. You can now pre-order Lotox Life, my book, and we've got a bunch of pre-order goodies for anyone who does pre-order. So your bonuses are things like interviews that are normally kept for just inside our e-courses, um, brilliant, uh, discount pool of all of my favorite Lotox brands. Uh, what else have we got? Um, some past webinars, a couple of eBooks, a whole bunch of goodies. So it's really, really valuable. Chocker, chocker, chocker. And if you pre-order, you always get a much better deal than after the publication date. It's usually 20, 30% off. Um, so do go there. You can pre-order Australia, UK, and US, um, and all of the shops that, or, or all of the online stores that have pre-order availability are linked in the pre-order tab. So all you need to do is jump onto lotoxlife.com and you'll see my book there and click on it and it'll take you to the pre-order page. Uh, the last thing I want to tell you about before I jump into today's chat is that Thrive, my e-course with the wonderful um, Brenda Janshek, starts this Wednesday. So if you're a parent and you find food confusing, you find uh, dinner table dinner time a nightmare or stressful, you have fussy kids, you have kids that can't focus, kids that are really... Um, really sensitive to texture and have issues around texture in, in a way more than, ew, I don't like that, but like gagging and all those sorts of reflexes. Um, kids that you're starting to worry around body image, Thrive, raising, foods who, raising Kids Who Love Real Food is the tagline, is your, it's, it's like we wanted to build a rock solid resource to help not only empower you to understand the difference between real food and the fake weirdness, but to help empower our kids, you know, saying yes, saying no is discipline, but in empowering them with knowledge, um, whatever their age is, zero to 18 is something else. And it's something that Brenda and I have worked really hard on in our own private coaching practices for years now, as well as in our communities, um, to, to know what works. And we've assembled an incredible array of doctors, psychologists, uh, naturopaths, nutritionists, um, occupational therapists, all together to help you find the whole food thing super enjoyable, super uncomplicated, and really empowering when it comes to raising kids who love real food and a really healthy appreciation of food, no neurotic kind of tendencies, um, 
either. It's not about being black and white. It's certainly not about being super strict and never eating a piece of candy at a friend's birthday party. You know, um, it really is just about making that that thing where what we do most of the time is awesome so that we don't have to worry about what we do some of the time, very much in line with um, low-tox life values. So do jump on. Um, I've popped the link there. Thrivinghappykids.com is the website. Otherwise, you can just go through from the show notes. Now, finally, uh, get to uh, dig into this incredible chat with Gero. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Gero is a wealth of knowledge. Um, you will really start to understand just what it takes, just the length that you can go to as a company to really, truly do right by people and by planet. And I hope you enjoy today's show with Gero Luzon as much as I did. Gero, how are you? Not too bad. Not too bad, Alex. That's good. It's nighttime for you in California at 10 o'clock and I'm here on a sunny afternoon, 3 o'clock in Sydney the next day. And I can tell you for a fact, Thursday is beautiful. You've got a lot to look forward to. So there you go. <laughs> not, not here. We'll have a pretty big rainstorm oh, coming no, in, which, really? is, which is beautiful, actually. We've, we're a little short on rain. So oh, well, that's good. That. Yeah. Whenever it rains in California, we should all be dancing out in the streets. Yes. Yeah. We, that's what we do here. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Um, look, I'm just so excited about the chat we're about to have. Dr. Bron is a company that I fell in love with, um, a few years ago now. And then I had the great pleasure of meeting Lisa when she was in town, uh, and catching up with her and hearing from her as a Bronner family member, the family story, which just was so enchanting that I had her as one of the first guests on the show when we started a couple of years ago. And, uh, and the reason I wanted to bring you in, um, as I said in the intro to everybody, is really because Fair Trade Day was looming and I really don't love for these days to be these tokenistic, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, I've done something nice for my planet today. Like it should be Fair day, Trade Day every day and I wanted to bring you on because I know the incredible transformative work you guys have done um, as a company and now for others uh, in, in the way that you've structured things. And I just wanted to pick your brain in every way possible today. So I really thank you for your, your time. For sure. Um, now, where can we start? I guess I'd like to start by asking you sort of how you became interested in sustainable supply chains. Like, were you one of those greeny children? Were you, you know, growing up in Germany, really aware of the environment or was it, Sort of more as you grew up and, and looked around and uh, started to observe things in your studies um, that you, you started to think, well, there's a different way we should be designing things. Uh, I, I think I was socialized that way. I was, I was born in 55 and I guess it was my family upbringing, the mm -hmm. fact that my father was a publisher. I got to read a lot and I, I realized, I guess, in the late 60s that things were uh, you know, a little off in Germany and the rest of my generation, or not the rest, a good chunk of my generation realized the same. So there was political unrest. And I, I just found myself on the, the left side of things almost inadvertently. This was just by, by gut feel. And then, you know, you have long hair, you smoke pot, <laughs> you get involved in, in student politics and then the environment is just around the corner, right? So there was nuclear power, and as a physicist, you get involved in that. You try to teach people about so the, the, the science side of environmental issues. So I was fully loaded by the time I was 20 or, or 25. Yeah. And I, I think that it was that mix of 
a sense a desire for social justice, environmental improvement, development came in pretty early on because my um, girlfriend, then wife now, and I, we traveled extensively to Turkey and to Iran. You would be driving, right? Mm. There, were, there was no flying in, in those days. And you just get a sense of, you know, different levels of development in different countries. So it was always clear that social justice, developmental justice, and then environmental issues, those were key. So I think this is how I started out. And then I was science-minded, studied physics. And, and then you moved to America, right? Why did, what pulled you there? I, I didn't want to work. Basically, that's, that's the bottom line. I, just, it's just it's, you and me, Gary. You can tell the truth here. It's all good. It's, I, I, I know, and it's 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 true. As a physicist, you know, I had a I had a pretty good diploma. It took me a long time yeah. to get my diploma because I was busy doing a lot of other things, and then I was pulled out to get my uh, compulsory service done. And I started thinking, well, I guess it's time to get a job. I was 28, but I didn't feel like working for the defense industry or in computer. And I also didn't feel like going back into academia, which mm. is somewhat of a ghetto. But I liked, I liked real life. And one of my, my professor in Cologne said, why don't you just go to the U.S.? He had taught there for a while. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. And then I found a, a program in environmental science and engineering which had an internship built into it that would force me to work, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm a little lazy, <laughs> and I do. I, I need external pressure. Plus, you know how it is. Sometimes you have to leave your cozy home. Yes. To just test the world. And so after 30 years of, of living in Cologne, where I was born and grew up, I think we both were ready for a change. And it didn't take me long to decide that this was a good idea. So I applied for this program at UCLA. They accepted me, and then we just switched sides, and it was one of the smartest moves I, I made. It was a fantastic curriculum compared to German universities who were not that hot, I, I have to say, just, just in terms of didactic skills. And America has a, a lot of pluses, you know. There's dark sides to it, but some of the pluses are that people are encouraged to try things out. You know, in, in Germany, professors would say if you come up with a good idea they would say yes but or your colleagues would say yes but ah, yeah in the u.s they say yeah just give it a try sounds good they say sounds mm. good give it a try and the same my wife is an artist same same thing as a as a young female artist in cologne in the 80s you wouldn't have tried to just go to a gallery and show your portfolio in los angeles you did this mm. and i think it was just encouraging for us to try things out in a completely new setting and just just gain a lot of self-confidence by realizing, wow, we actually had learned things that were useful, which I, I wasn't really aware of before, I, I have to admit. So that was um, it was a pretty good experience and decision. And then our five year plan miserably failed. So we <laughs> never went we never went back to Germany, but we go there all the time. So yeah. it's kinda nice to leave your fatherland as they say, Germany, and realize it's not so bad there. Yeah. I, I, I always thought Cologne is one of the ugliest places on the planet until we moved to Los Angeles. <laughs> and then 
and it's it, you know it just gives you some perspective right yeah, so now i like i like both sides there are other difference but they both have lots to lots to offer absolutely and no one does winter festivals like germany like it just looks like the most <laughs> beautiful picture of coziness like something out of a fairy tale so there's there's beauty everywhere we just got to look for it right there, there, there is and it it helps if you see diversity and i think that was good training it's just to switch sides and and look at your homeland from the other end and realize there's great things about it the shitty things about it and you just you just start picking and choosing mm. I, I really like that yeah absolutely um i'm an international as well born in london lived in chicago mm -hmm. lived sydney half french mauritian half aussie now of course as well and um and i really do think it does give you an openness about the world and a yep. And yep, a, a yep. curiosity about, the, oh, that's the way they do things. Like, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, rather than, oh, that's not my way, that's wrong. <laughs> which, it's, which, yeah. it's, it, it doesn't happen automatically. Mm. You, you, you do need to be open. I remember the first five years in the, in the U.S., notably when German visitors came. What you would do is all evening long drink, smoke, and then just beat up on the U.S. and complain how uh, about the lack of... Uh, culture you know just the usual complaints that europeans have about the united states and so it, it took a while and after a few years then you open up so this doesn't happen overnight so yeah but it's the openness i think you need you, you need to be open to what you see if you're too judgmental you just never get over it and and you i think become bitter and and useless I yeah. think. so I, so openness, open, openness is the trigger. Let I me think. ask you a personal question then. How do you think you found that openness? Well, it's a, I'd say it's a wild mix of several periods of psychotherapy, mm -hmm. uh, usually with older women that were wise, so that helped an awful lot. And then I'd say um, meditation. One, one of the therapists introduced us to Buddhists, to, um, to Tibetan Buddhism, and not that we were hardcore practitioners, but I think this concept of openness mm. was, was prompted. And then it's just, you know, a whole sequence of personal events. So the, none of these things you can see in isolation, but I think it's really psychotherapy, Buddhism, and then probably a whole bunch of... Um, you know, heroic self-experimentation with drugs that, that never hurt. <laughs> Such a rocker. I love it. You know, it's only someone born in 55 could be so open about that time. And I think it's great. Um, now, something that I noticed, I did a bit of snooping around uh, before we had our chat today. And I saw on your, um, on the details of your doctorate in environmental sciences, that your paper was on biofilters and treatment of toxic air. And this is something we've been talking about a lot because of a personal journey I've been on being terribly affected by a water damaged building and my health mm -hmm. going all over the, over, over the shop over the last couple of years and now getting back on track. And um, a lot of us, it, it's amazing since I started then talking about it on the show, talking about how I cleaned things in our move, how I had to get rid of certain things and, all, you know, connecting people with really great filters systems great dehumidifiers all these things to clean up our indoor air spaces um like it, it's amazing how many people are coming out of the woodworks with aha moments going oh my gosh my indoor airspace is damaging my health 
and mm-hmm. all my kids' health, you know, because some people detox really well, others not so well, and they're more affected. I'm unfortunately one of those. So I would love to just totally tangent before we hook into all of the amazing Dr. Bronner stuff we're just about to talk about and just pick your brain on on home filtration. Like how does the average person um, ensure, like what are some of the things that you've kind of across in your study of that that mean that we can uh, – get the freshest air possible inside. Well, that that could just cover an, an hour right there. I know, so I know, just, but I couldn't resist when I saw no, you've done your sure. doctorate in that. Yeah. So I, I could take the easy way out and just say that the biofiltration, of course, was used to treat largely odorous and toxic industrial off-gases. Okay, so they, right. they treat the smokestack emissions and my, my work was related to figuring out what type of off-gas streams is this good for and what isn't. Mm-hmm. The, the, reality, the reality is this. But when I was doing my dissertation, I was working for a consulting firm in California. So I had to come up with a topic for my dissertation. And my professor was, was beating up on me because it had taken me a year. And I thought it's best to find a subject that deals with Europe and is a good excuse to go back to Europe every once in a while. So I came across this technology of biofiltration, which Dutch and German companies had developed. And I thought, there's a market. And air pollution control was what I was working on in in Los Angeles for the consulting firm. So biofiltration is nothing more than, I'd say, sophisticated compost piles that through which you, you route polluted air, whether it's odorous or contains volatile organics and microorganisms basically absorb and digest that material and then just convert it into into CO2. And so I, I became, this, this is fun, um, I became a guru of biofiltration for a while, but you couldn't use this for indoor air okay. because you would also have emissions of spores mm-hmm. from the uh, from the compost, right? Yeah. So this actually was an issue that, that was discussed. Is there a risk related to that? But this whole issue of, Indoor air pollution was actually pretty hot in Germany before I left. I, I worked there for an environmental research institute. And in fact, I, had, I ended up testing the air in the homes of quite a few customers of that research institute. So one of the issues we had back then was formaldehyde, largely emitted from particle board. Mm. You know, furniture made from particle board was, yeah. was a source. And so formaldehyde was a key issue, I admit. And then, then the, it was the use of toxic paints was yes. a key issue. Mold didn't come up until after I had left. But in the United States, I watched it. Uh, there was asbestos, of course. Yeah, then, of course. You know, there was mold. And I guess the, the, the treatment of indoor air Pollution is a tricky thing. My attitude is a little simplistic. I'd say just control the source, meaning yeah, just of don't put it in in the first place. But that's easier to say for somebody who rents and the landlord had just used cheap building materials and exposes his tenants, for instance, mm. or the developer did this with the house. So we had that, really, yes, in one of our I'm, places. I'm sure. Mm. You must have had scandals. They must have had it here in the US. So, questions then. What do you do with it? How how do you treat it? And it it's it's tricky. You know, ventilation certainly helps, but that's 
tough to tell to people in cold climates that don't like opening the windows. So short of just renovating the entire place, which many people can't afford, it's installing air cleaning machines is pretty expensive and you have to you have to um you have to replace cartridges depending on what the technology is yeah so it's ventilation in particular if you have water damage is is key yeah frequent vacuum all this this sounds pretty trite but it's no but it's effective absolutely and if you know hello a doctor of environmental science tell actually you know sometimes the most complex so, like problems are fixed by really simple solutions. Um, it's, you can you can build it. You can build a big machine, but nobody can afford it. You might as well just build a new house. <laughs> and it's 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 really it's source control. But again, there's there's lots of sins of the past yeah. where building materials have used lead problems. I'm sure you have in Australia. Well, mm. we sure have them here in in even in San Francisco quite a bit. So restoring renovating it's a big task it's super expensive and I, I find it frustrating this is actually a business i never really got involved in even though there was lots of activity and money in it i i started disliking yeah. fixing sins of, of the past so when i was in environmental consulting i did not get into cleaning out leaking underground storage tanks or just doing stuff that was messed up in the past. It's got to yeah, be done. Yeah, that's sure. so interesting because obviously you leave the consulting firm, you join, you know, Dr. Bronner's in this case, and, and that is all about creating new amazing work, like create, yeah. designing a new future instead of trying to fix a broken past. It's, so that's very interesting that yeah. you said that. Yeah. That's that's really what, what drove me. So when, when I was working for a consulting firm then went out on my own as a as a biofilter expert you're treating end of pipe mm. and it's nice to be an expert on that and it's got to be done but to me i was always more interested to get to the front end of things and see whether you can you can have an impact on how the the ecology of our economy how it's run in the first place and so the first step there and this is really how I ultimately came across Dr. Bronner's is hemp, which you may have heard of. Yes, of so, course. So hemp came up through a friend in Germany who, co-physicist, just became one of the, the people who helped make industrial hemp legal in Germany in 1996. And I helped him put together a few conferences, scientific conference, of course, there had to be scientific, scientific conferences on, on hemp. And then for... For a number of, and I liked hemp because it had the claim of just being a much more ecological and sustainable, they'd say today, raw material that had just a million of different uses and it would just change the environment and everything. I wasn't naive enough to believe all that, but I thought this is something really interesting because it deals with the front end mm. of the economy, not not with the not with the um, not with a tailpipe. Well, it's preventative instead of curative, right? Uh, yeah, in yeah, in in a way. In, yeah, because well, it creates. It's, it's, I mean, it creates a cure, but almost as a byproduct of like the preventative work of actually, if you set it up right, then you don't have all those problems down the track. It's that's that's that was the idea. Of course, the people in hemp were mostly naive, mm-hmm. highly motivated, naive. Some of them were idiots. <laughs> and some of them were fraudulent, but just a usual mix. But 
it's the funniest scene you can imagine. And I love going to European hemp conferences. I'm, I'm still a member and represent Dr. Bronis in, in Europe. There, yeah. There's a hemp association. And it's the funniest industry you can think of. Oh, really? Like what kind of stuff it's, you mean in terms of like the conference dinners, the drinks in the bar, like what people talk about? What, what's it like? It's, it's, it's more, there's a lot of companionship, even though there's, there's lots of competition too, but it's a, it's a small industry where you have people from, it's almost all European countries. It's really pan-European where you have people who've become friends over the years, where you have French, the, the conferences are in English. Now imagine you have French speakers. There's a lot of hemp production going on in France. So those poor Is French there? people are forced to speak that. English. Mm. This Actually, France was the greatest producer until everybody else legalized. The French didn't like it. They used to grow hemp just for cigarette paper and it was highly subsidized. Mm-hmm. And everybody else was not allowed to grow it. And this is what ultimately made the UK and Germany and then the other countries legalize the cultivation of low THC hemp. And then just more and more uses came up in fiber, you know, in automotive composites. Then it was insulation material. Then the seeds came up as a source of, of food. Yeah. So it's a super diverse industry. And you've got people, many are super intelligent and motivated. And there is beyond competition there's a, a spree, a spree the core, you know, people just pursuing the same cause. And it's not that everybody smokes pot, mm-hmm. which is what many a people, lot of people would think. think that that's what it's going to be like. Yeah, it's it's only 50 percent. There's lots of people who've never smoked, but they're tolerant. So it's just it's this concept of tolerance. And then some people light up and then you have really fun discussions. And other people <laughs> may just drink a beer. But it's it's super relax and it's very constructive and i i like the um i, I like the spirit of, of those conferences and it's similar in, in canada and, and here in the u.s and i always say you go to flex conferences and they're much more boring like i would never go to a flex conference because there's not the same spirit and of course it has to do with the fact that some varieties of hemp you can smoke for pleasure yeah and you can't do that with flax and that is definitely a big difference but it's, <laughs> it's, a it's sort of a symbolic difference. little industry it, it, it is really i mean even just America. saying the flax conference it just doesn't it, really have much it, of a ring to it. it it there are people who are in that industry and there's wood conferences mm. and paper and like you wouldn't believe it i've been to a few pretty technical conferences but nothing beats hemp conferences they're yeah. they're, they're they're different and we'll, particularly we'll try and get a ticket to one of those industrial if you ever <laughs> need to go to europe in May or June, this is when they usually are, and they're 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 just pretty cool conferences. Yeah. I, I, and they're super they're super scientific, of course, but of course. they're lots of fun. I mean, the hemp yeah. plant has so much potential. Um, I mean, you know, in terms of how much water it uses, in terms of how fast it grows, in terms of how many uses you can have for it, it's it's an incredible plant. It's it it is Alex, except in reality, but that. They could just take hours to discuss. Mm-hmm. The reality is a little more harsh mm-hmm. in that our economy isn't really made for plants that are super diverse. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that cotton was so successful. No conspiracy there. Cotton was just um, superior in terms of its spinning and, and, and yarn qualities. And nobody really cares about the environmental conditions there. And many other products, hemp just 
is is second rate and it's it's diversity that's so fantastic what's really good is the seeds there's no seeds i would say that has the same kind of fatty acid mm-hmm. spectrum as hemp does I, I spent some time on on that issue and it hasn't really grown it's legal so one would say in europe well if it's legal then it should just just take off and become super successful. That has taken 20 years and it's still a tiny crop compared to other major commodities, but it's been growing steadily. People try it out, they find new applications. The latest thing is, you may have heard of CBD. Mm, absolutely, uh, very trendy right but now, yeah. It's, it's super trendy, but it's so funny to see what happened is that the guys here in the US and in Germany, they're extracting CBD from industrial hemp. It does not get you high, but there's some really interesting pharmacological um, properties it has. And I have a sense this may, it's not, gonna, it's not going to outweigh THC, but CBD has great pharmacological potential to, I'd say, anti-anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, and potential. anti-inflammation as well, right? That that's that's another one mm. where the potential is great. There's there's not enough studies yet, but yeah. I've I've tried it, and CBD has just a real interesting, relaxing effect. Um, mm. Tough to describe, but there's no psychoactivity to it. It makes you sleep better, mm-hmm. but it's it's not. It doesn't have the hit activity of say a sleeping pill or so. So it's really interesting the kind of stuff that over the years has been made from hemp and I'd say CBD is just the latest surprise so in, in that respect it's a it's it's a fantastic plant it's really difficult to grow and I know people who went broke and not too many people have really made money but it's just created just a, a wild crowd of entrepreneurs who just think this was a good idea to get involved for many reasons and this is ultimately how I met David Bronner then Mm. So tell me about that meeting, like you, you guys, was it at a conference or was it an arranged thing? No, it, what, what happened is that the United States Drug Enforcement Administration, in their wisdom, in, it was 1999 or so, decided that this hemp business was going too far. The Canadians started importing, they started growing and importing legally into the U.S., and the DEA did not like this because they saw behind every hemp plant, they just saw a camouflaged cannabis plants that people just wanted to smoke. So they were super annoyed by this. And what had happened is that a, a few people had found out that if you have a positive drug test, a urine test for marijuana, you can credibly claim that this was caused by hemp food. At the time, there were Chinese seeds and oil in the market. They could actually cause positive drug tests. Oh, wow. And and the DEA used that as an excuse to go after hemp. And they did this how any good rogue agency like the CIA or the FBI or the DEA would do is just don't ask the public, just push it through. Yeah. Don't solicit public input. So they, they tried to ban all hemp foods in, in, a, some, in a somewhat ruthless way. Well, in Australia, they were successful. Brown, we weren't, it, it wasn't legal to eat hemp seeds in a brownie or um, through your I, muesli. I, 
I've watched it. I've, I've given advice to the guys in Australia and, mm. and New Zealand for a while. And here, you're right. It was illegal in, in Australia, but here it was just it was just a a, a stupid scheme. Well, difficult question. You know, the Australians they had some reasons, but they were ultimately not very solid here. They didn't really care. It was yeah. it was a political move that DEA made. And David, in his, in his um, passionate manner, in his passion and <laughs> leadership, he said, "Oh, we're going to go sue the DEA." So I had done a study actually uh, a little before to establish that eating Canadian hemp oil actually does not cause positive drug tests, mm. and that study was completed. So I introduced this as evidence to the court case. So David and I met before, so he became aware of the work I was doing. And then we just started working, and he supported what we did. And then we—I think we met in court or so. So oh, we, wow. we didn't have a strong relationship, but not not arguing against each other. But we just attended the hearings here in San Francisco in federal court, and it was just fun to see the DEA get beaten up by um, actually by a Reagan-appointed judge. So that was really fun. Oh wow, to, that is to, exciting. It, it was it was it was fantastic, and then I continued doing some more hemp work for David, but I didn't really see that there was much work for me at at Dr. Bronner's. And at that time, then I I had gone into development work. I worked in Sri Lanka mm -hmm. on a project for USAID to help their coconut fiber industry to become more competitive. And I had spent time in Nigeria, actually working for Chevron. That was super interesting. And then in 2005, Dr. Bronner's was thinking they should switch to organic and fat rate raw materials. Yeah. And David asked whether I wasn't interested in just setting up a production. There was no production of organic and fair trade coconut oil anywhere mm. in the world. And so he said, hey, why don't you just set up this project in Sri Lanka? I had partners there. He knew that. We had done a pretty effective uh, post-tsunami yeah. Um, camp campaign, and the rest was history. So I, I set up that the first factory, and then David just asked me to take on the development of, of a palm oil resource. Then we found an olive oil project in the West Bank that I helped become organic and fair trade certified. So we just started developing our own supply chain for our main raw material with the theme organic and and fair trade. So to me, it was just just a way to get even further in front of the supply chain. And I, I like the spirit of Dr. Bronner's. They were properly crazy, the <laughs> whole family, in, in different in different ways, of course. You know, no, no disrespect here. And yeah. it was just it was just a natural move. And I've always enjoyed much freedom. So there was no real decision for me not not to do this and, and maintain independence i was actually able to maintain much independence yeah in the work i do while at the same time being part of a greater of a greater entity that has you know plans to just clean up the whole planet and that just went back to my 60s and 70s where that's what i would have done and nowadays i often say looking back what the, the kind of priorities David and Mike set for the company. Mm. This is the wish list I had as a teenager. 
Yeah. And, and a young, you know, it's the same stuff. It's the same goals. It's social justice. It's environmental justice. It's development justice. So it, it's it's really nice, you know, mm. in, in your in your late age, so to speak, to realize that you're working for a company that shares the same goals you had when you were a kid. I think that is just so interesting that you said that because I think it's one of the reasons I fell so profoundly in love with the company and the work that they do um, because as a teenager I was so passionate about social justice, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. passionate about environmental justice. I remember Julian Lennon coming to our school and giving a talk on Environment Day and, Uh you know, just some really incredibly fortunate experiences that, that switched the light on for me. Um, yep. And then the the developmental justice. Really interesting that you say that yep. because I'm half Mauritian. I see what a developing country looks like, yep. and yep. the um, the issues, the hardships, the complications around um, empowering people in that in those areas. And um, and I think you know it, again, you know, I was so passionate about all that as a teenager. So when you then think I can buy a soap from people that care about all that stuff too, it really. It just adds a whole level of depth to the purchase that you make, which might seem like such a, a banal thing to buy, soap for your shower or for your your car or whatever else you want to use it for because you can use it for so many things. But um, And yet it actually represents so much more, which I think is what, you know, choosing um, products based on our values, choosing to buy from and interact with companies based on our values really just makes us so much more... Um, satisfied i think on a deeper level about everyday stuff it it does it does that and that's become a trend in australia just as much as here in the us or in germany the the thing about the soap is funny of course it's got a super high symbolic value and in in addition if you consider the family history you know the german jewish soap making roots and then just the, the the cleaning value of the soap we joke about this at times i mean we're, we're just cleaning up the world in, in some respects <laughs> yeah. and of course then you also you have to be credible and that's something that i i'm not sure whether there's too many companies that are as as radical and consistent in in what we do and how we spend our money there's many other companies in our space that have similar aspirations and we actually work uh, just today i came from a meeting where i met with several other companies that are in the natural food and cosmetics business here in northern california so we're talking about how to affect agricultural conditions on the ground mm. not an easy thing to do and there dr brown has just great standing because that's what we've been doing the um, the last 12 years mm. or so yeah and the nice thing Dr. Bronner's is, we're just credible, right? I, I don't have to make stories up. Yeah, and it's not marketing it, spin. It's it, it's happening. It's, yeah, no. yeah. It's I I could say what I want, and it's it's true. It's yeah. kind of it's kind of fun to do that. You know, I, <laughs> I used to work as a consultant for oil companies or so. I w- I never had to be their spokesman. Yeah, and it would have been tough. And with Dr. Bronner's, I joke to say I love selling soap, which wasn't really. In my my cradle, the idea that I would end up as a soap salesman, but it, it's part of the job, right? You, you just do that. You just speak about what you do and the product, and you just can't help but selling soap. Yeah, it's it's really it's really fun. The, the way this simple <laughs> all that super- study a PhD selling soap. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think I think 
my parents would be proud of me if they I think they, they would be most proud that I got a job in the first place and, but they, they were always a little concerned about it but Lazy Garrow sorted himself out in the end hey yeah. <laughs> it took a little longer you know I didn't know what I was going to do until I was 50 but it yeah. worked out just fine that's great um, so like let's talk about that crazy German soap maker back in the day and he was the man Dr. Bronner's and I love the story um, and for anyone who hasn't heard the full family story of the Dr. Bronner's history please do go back and listen to show number two with Lisa um, Lisa Bronner who tells it so beautifully um, what I love is that this company was founded by someone who was about uniting everybody on this spaceship uh, together as one, all one was his, you know, mantra, if you like. And, and what that's sort of the family has managed to stay so true to mission and now surround themselves with so many people who share that mission, fighting for fair pay. I loved the $15 minimum wage um, campaign mm-hmm. on the fair pay, like the limited edition bottles that were done for that time. Um, I've got a little statue of um, uh, Bernie Sanders from the 2016 election just behind me here. So I I just loved how they really jumped on some of those amazing social justice issues as they were given so much voice finally um, a couple of years ago. Um, What I also love is they donate to countless funds, community projects, but the work is done very much in-house as well. And I want to talk about Um, something rather huge that has come to light um, that I read about, I think it was last month or the month before, um, for the first time, and maybe you guys have been working on it for a while, is the Regenerative Organic Agriculture Certification um, and the fact that this is a joint venture between, uh, is it Patagonia and Rodale Institute? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's Patagonia is is really the commercial. Commercial, the largest. There's several other companies involved, but Patagonia okay, right. is for sure the largest. And then the Ro- the Rodale Institute has been the scientific facilitator yes. to the whole process. And- yeah, I visited uh, the Rodale Institute not mm-hmm. last year, but the year before, and I stood there with my own two eyes mm-hmm. looking at the conventional corn being grown there and then the regenerative corn being grown there and the longest standing conventional versus... Um, regenerative study that's ever been done anywhere in the world proving that there is that there are legs for this way of farming and that it is competitive to conventional standards and I think um, they, they've just done such amazing work over the past few decades but I'd love to hear your real like being so close to this certification what is if you could explain it really simply the difference between organic and regenerative organic certification so or organic really started out as as a, as a practice or a system of of agriculture that actually did pay attention to soil health and the conservation or the regeneration of of soil. So the the original organic private standards, you know, before NOP here in the United States came to pass in the in the nineties, original. Organic agriculture was very much focusing on soil health. In reality, though, over the last 20 years, more and more of organic production is what some people call organic by default or even worse, organic by neglect. Mm-hmm. And I, I was able to, I was able to um, 
see this firsthand when we started our organic project in, in Sri Lanka because you realize many farmers, they don't spray or they don't use fertilizer. They actually don't do anything mm. because, because it's cheaper. So they're organic by neglect and many certifiers let that pass as organic. And we were lucky enough ah, to have a gotcha. certifier. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, most people don't know this and mm. I, we had no idea. We were thinking we go organic because we avoid spraying. Well, actually, nobody sprays in coconuts. In mm. coconuts, I won't. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't think no, you just, sort of needed to do that with a coconut palm. You, you, most people don't. There's mm. occasional diseases, but the losses are not significant. So it was pretty easy in the Philippines to start producing organic coconut oil. It didn't mean anything. Mm. There was no difference to yeah. it. And when we started, we had a certifier who said, well, you know, organic standards in the EU actually do include a commitment to improving soil quality. Mm -hmm. And since I was very much into it and Gordon, our partner in Sri Lanka was, we just put in a composting operation, a small one first and scaled it up later. And then we started pushing farmers to, to mulch, to take the waste, you know, the, the leaves that came down the grasses and, and make mulches for the trees, not burn it. So, I got, I think after just a couple of years into the first project, I realized that fair trade isn't just about paying a somewhat higher price. It's also about helping farmers increase productivity and yield. Mm. Of the so organic is much more. Well, it's more. the teach a man to fish principle, right? It, it's, it's that. Mm. And this is really where I, I saw the potential of fair trade and organic combined. This is why I became such a strong believer in, in that combination is because you just improve the economics of smallholder farming if you support farmers in improving soil quality. So this became our mantra on all projects. And not everywhere were we able to push it as strongly as initially in, in Sri Lanka, because it's sometimes tough to change farmers' habits. But I knew that this was ultimately the goal. So I brought this up pretty early in discussions with with David and also others to make him realize that pesticide use is not the, the major issue here. And the same on fair trade. It's not about child labor or not having child labor or about paying good prices. It's also about supporting the economic basis of smallholder farming. So we had a head start on this whole topic of organic and the limitations of organic, the way it's being practiced, never mind the fraud that goes on, right? It's, there's, I, I always say, I'd say 50% of organic certified products are not organic. Wowza. Because, because there's fraud. Yeah. And it's diff really difficult to prevent. Mm -hmm. And we've ourselves had in a project, we had fraud. So I'm, I'm very aware of it. So organic, great concept, but increasingly not practiced the way it was originally intend <clears throat> intended to. Yeah, I think once you and see organic Oreos on a shelf, you go, okay, Houston, we've got a bit of a problem that, with this word that, now. That comes, that comes on top. It's yeah, that it's yeah. really counter um, yeah, the, the concept of using fresh, organically grown mm. fruits and veggies, and then rather you just find some, you find organic sugar, in or in organic Oreos, right? How sick is that? Yeah. So it's it's that, and then I guess what what was what really triggered this whole regenerative movement is that 
two or three years ago, after all of our projects had started practicing at least things that help soil being regenerated, then this connection between global climate change mm. and soil, soil health was made. And I had overlooked this. Shame on me. I should have known this. Well, I think a lot But, of us did. I think, yeah. Yeah, except I, except I studied this and I always knew that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. We can be harder on I you. <laughs> some, you can. And I had overlooked the soil. Yeah. The, the trees, there had been efforts to, to replant forests in order to sequester atmospheric CO2. So this had started in the 90s already. But the soil had been overlooked. Um, as, as a potential sink for carbon dioxide. So this came up here in California. A, a good friend, John Rulek from Nativa, he set up a conference. He fell into this. Several of us had this, this, this Saul to Paul moment, fell, fell off the horse and realized, wow, agriculture actually is, is a tool and has huge potential to um, help improve the atmosphere to me there was always icing on the cake since i deal with smallholders it was always more interesting to me to improve productivity and the resilience of the soil for economic reasons not so much for in environmental although that's that's super important so that's really the starting point of of the regenerative movement we, we were not the first ones there they've been people that just got sick of organic the way it's practiced and said there's got to be a little more to organic agriculture than what's done. And so that term regenerative agriculture was coined. Mm. And then to me, that became a mandate on all of our projects, pay particular attention to shifting towards more and more regenerative practices in coconut and palm oil and mint oil and whatnot. And David has an uncanny nose for for loopholes and for cheating. Mm -hmm. So he's been, he's been battling companies that call themselves organic body care and had virtually not, nothing organic in those products. Yeah. He's battling them even before I got involved with Dr. Bronner's. And the same thing then here, he mm. just saw that people would start using the term regenerative without any substantiation. Yeah. And he's right. And it's already happening. So I think the effort was to set a standard. Number one is to somewhat control this kind of label fraud, but also to create more awareness of the topic to support farmers in the United States mm -hmm. going on regenerative. And of course, the work we did in our own projects in developing countries became really, really nice um, show projects so to speak, demonstration projects. Well, so nice case studies to, to prove. They are. Yeah. They, they are. They're really nice case studies. And it wasn't difficult for me to do that because we had already laid the groundwork. So we, we shifted uh, full speed into regeneration or just accelerated the pace and started looking for other ways of doing it. And this, re this uh, dynamic agroforestry that we talked about is just one of the techniques you can use if your products happened to come from trees so mm. fantastic and so we just jumped into i was just so fascinated when i came across it a year and a half ago yeah so we just we actually bought land in ghana and set up our own two demo farms 
Mm-hmm. So farmers actually see what this does and um, just stuff like that. I get, bet Monsanto didn't do demo farms for people to see how it goes for a couple of years before people bought in. They, yeah. they, they, they probably did. They, they probably looked pretty well, I don't know exactly how they did it. No, they probably showed how how nicely um, how nicely Roundup works in killing weeds. And yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure farmers quite liked it. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so in terms of soil, because we've got to stop thinking of soil as dirt that you can just put fertilizer and chemicals into, right? What's something yeah. you wish people really understood about soil to see how vital soil's role in um, in preventing further climate change is? I think most people don't know just quantitatively how much carbon in the form of humus mm-hmm. or mother soil, topsoil, how, how much carbon the soil actually stores and how much it used to store before we started just tilling it up burning down vegetation and tilling it up on a, on a large scale. Mm. I think people are not aware of the extent to which soil can again become a sink for mm. atmospheric carbon because yeah. that's, that's where the carbon comes from. Most people think all that carbon in the atmosphere just comes from the combustion of fossil fuels. And of course, they had a major contribution to that and no, nobody knows exactly how much the depletion and destruction of soil contribute. But I'd say one third of total CO2 in the atmosphere, anthropogenic, comes from the soil. The other two, maybe the other two thirds may come from fossil fuels. Just to give an idea of mm. quantitatively how yeah. much destruction of soil has contributed, has contributed to the, the rise in CO2 in the mm. atmosphere. And the flip side of that is there's a potential to bring much of this back. Yes, I would stuff. totally agree because, yeah, if we think about that, um, the fact it's probably the big three really, isn't it? It's the, um, it's the fossil fuels, it's the factory farming, and it's, mm-hmm. the, and it's the way the soil's been treated itself. Yep. Those are the major factors. So to revert the destruction of soil is really one of the objectives of regenerative agriculture and again to me even if there was no climate change benefits i'd still do all of what we do on the projects because it does improve soil quality and productivity it increases for instance the moisture holding capacity of a soil thus making unirrigated land more resilient mm-hmm. to increasingly volatile climate conditions. Like we, we have droughts in Sri Lanka now every three years. Nothing new about droughts. Mm. But from what everybody seems to believe, including myself, is just the disasters will get a little more frequent and maybe more severe. And people that have no control over the condition and the irrigation of their land yeah. are in, in dire straits. So having a soil that's more spongy, and more resilient is to many smallholder farmers in the tropics will be just the one lifeline they have. And then productivity go, goes up if you have more humus in, in your soil. So if it was just that, that would be good enough for me to, 
practice regeneration, but the fact that you may be able to store carbon back into that soil quantitatively on a on serious level, that is a really nice icing on the cake for me. So I, I get a real kick out of the fact that by restoring soil, again, you will also, to some extent, restore the atmosphere. Not sure whether I'll, I'll live to see it, but doesn't matter. I think it's one of the things we can do in addition to, you know, shifting to renewable sources of energy, but shifting our agricultural practices to where, again, rebuilding of soil becomes a key objective, I believe, is, is one of the cool things humanity can do. And it's it's pretty nice, you know, to be mm. at the forefront of this. So it's, I, I get a kick out of it. And I think this is what drives David and, and all of us in that in yeah. that space. It's, it's just really exciting to see that you can practice these things. The challenge, of course, is to implement this in the real world. How mm. do you get found? Farmers are generally conservative. How do you get farmers to change their ways? It's not yes, trivial. Yes, it's not trivial. Absolutely. And I think what's beautiful about all of this, and you said, you know, I might not live to see it, but that's not what really drives some of the most precious ancient civilizations that we've had. Like if you think of the Iroaki, um, uh, was it a peace charter or a, it was like one of the first um, documents of like this is how society will be and their beautiful saying these incredible native indian native american indians saying mm -hmm. act with the seventh generation in mind and you know yep. that that's what you're doing the work yep. you're doing right now is acting with the seventh generation it's not about you it's about yep. the legacy it's about what you leave to people and being okay yeah. with that mm. it, it's it just it's really long term but of course you do it there's it, got to be immediate satisfaction otherwise things get boring so the immediate satisfaction is just to do this with you know a growing number of like-minded people that have the same conviction and think this is a pretty cool idea mm. you know to use your brain to improve conditions and just revert some of the worst abuses that we've managed to commit on on, on mother earth over yeah. the last say 150 years but there's just a lot of fun and there's there's just it's nice to excite to get people excited about this right yeah this is what absolutely that, that, that's what we're doing right now and it doesn't all happen overnight and it's just sometimes it's pretty business it's like molasses you know it takes forever <laughs> and then eh, whatever it's always the same if you try to do something new it, yeah. it it goes a little slow, but we're making really nice inroads, and it's it's kind of fun to be sort of at the forefront of of, of such a movement. You sure get a lot of kudos from your from your friends, mm. and and lots of respect. But it's also nice to just have have impact on the ground. But we're, we're actually just picking up, so I, I think I'm gonna have to stay with it for another twenty years or so. It, it takes a while to pick up, and I I could just see that the next twenty years. I think it's an Can exciting be, time. Yeah, it's it's super exciting because mm. there is stuff you can do. Finally, not too many people know about it. So the Europeans start to wake up. There's still a lot of skepticism about the extent to which it can change. Mainstream farmers in the U.S. Well, they're not going to give up GMOs and spraying overnight. But mm. there's increasing recognition that it's a good idea to put a cover crop onto the soil and not just let it sit bare throughout the winter, yeah. for instance. So there's gradual changes 
in the awareness of farmers and it's often just driven by the recognition that they're messing up their soil and it's a real good idea to have a soil that contains some life mm. and more carbon and more carbon yeah than it has right now and like i mean you've obviously got daily mounting proof that it's not only possible but it can be profitable and not just for us but for the beautiful planet that we all live on so what do you say to, like, have you had conversations with a farmer that has said literally my yield would never be as good if I switched to organic or regenerative, you can't get me interested, it's not going to work, it's not possible. Have you had a conversation like that? Or if you haven't, like, what would you say to that person? It, it, it's funny, it depends on where you have that conversation. Because mm, it's the, a deeply sensitive, because, you know, someone can feel judged. Someone can feel like you're attacking their way of farming, everything they've known about their job that they've done for decades. And I'm always conscious of that. You know, it's, it's, you don't, how, the, how we approach this it needs to feel inclusive, not judgmental. It's, I, I, I guess um, th- this shows where I'm, I'm a little lazy, right? So this discussion goes... <laughs> It's tougher. It's tougher to have in a northern country, say in Germany or the United States. Why? Because there, when farmers would go organic and just throw out their existing toolbox of GMO, mineral fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides, they would, in the short run, see a decline in production. It's the common belief. Now, if you were to um, shift immediately and start practicing regeneration, meaning you you just do things that help your soil recover. This this period wouldn't last for too long. Is what many people who practice farming here in the U.S. tell me. The thing in the tropics, though, is that the yields, the baseline of most farmers, actually suck. They're pretty low, and it's again it's organic by neglect oftentimes. It's the, the cultural practices, notably with trees, that are not particularly good. So there, your baseline is so low that switching to organic, and that just means you start practicing a few things that make sense, that going organic actually increases your yield without having to add any chemistry. So that's, wow. that's the experience we've had in Sri Lanka and in Ghana, but that's simply because the farmers did not take care of their the land and their crops before and they didn't fertilize so going organic simply meant that you start adding compost and you start pruning the trees properly and you mulch and all these things combined just bring up yield by we've had yield increases by 30 40 percent in in ghana on palm fruits so it just depends on what baseline you use so to say that or going organic automatically means lower yields may be true in a situation where if you've got highly chemicalized agriculture and then just stop using the poison. That'll cause some trouble for a while, not in the long run necessarily. It's different in the tropics. So that's where these discussions with farmers in the, in the tropics are not as difficult as they would be with a farmer here who is just completely automated and just uses all the technology to get that person off the drug, that's a different discussion. Yeah, gotcha. That, yeah, and that's, that's, that's going to take a while. Mm. And I'm, you, you get probably yelled at quite 
a little bit if you, if you do that. The fun part is in the United States, you've got cowboys, old school farmers who realize they have to change mm. their ways and are about to do this. And some of them may have voted for Donald Trump, but you don't care. If these people do something and just realize that they better change their ways if there's to be a future for their farm and their, their kids. And yeah. we meet quite a few of those. That's pretty encouraging to see. It is Still, encouraging, but, yeah. And having met um, Joel Salatin and been mm -hmm. to his talks and, and lectures mm -hmm. and I've had a wonderful regenerative farmer too, actually. One, Paul Grieve, who's not too far from you guys down in um, Vista. He's mm -hmm. in uh, Moretti, I think, in um, Southern California. And mm -hmm. um, and he's got a wonderful farm, Primal Pastures. And these yep. guys, when they talk, or women, there are many female regenerative farmers as well, when they're talking, you can see just the joy that they feel for having cracked this, that you can actually run a business and look after the planet and have healthy mm -hmm. pro profits, you know, and, and, and have amazing health for you and your customers because you're not using all the nasty stuff that our bodies don't understand. I mean, it really is just, I think that's why it's such a happy bunch when you hit regenerative farming land. Everyone's just so passionate and excited and genuinely happy because, I mean, you can only feel that happy when you know that the work you do extends beyond your years that you're going to be on the planet. It's, it's a very it's, special thing. It's, it's that. And I guess we're, we're all simple enough as, as humans. So it's kind of nice to be part of a cause. And regenerative agriculture is just a cause, whereas conventional agriculture, just like going to a flex conference, you know, it's just, it, it's nice to have efficient farms, but it's it's a little it's a little tired. It's not as exciting. It's not it's not a real cause. Whereas regeneration is a cause, mm. and you know if you're part of a cause, you, you get up in the morning, and you just need less coffee to go to work, <laughs> and you just you're just more motivated. And, yeah. And this is this is also I think part of the secret of Dr. Bronner's is that, you know, we're, we're behind causes yes. that people can relate to. And nothing gets you more excited than being part of a cause you actually believe in. Mm. Now, the trick, the trick, of course, is who, who is to say whether this is a good cause or not. So there's many people who think their cause is great, but it's not. Mm. And in some cases, like, you know, having machine guns to protect your home or things like that. So there's people who think this is a great cause to support. Mm. And they get excited about it, but I don't. But I, I actually... I happen to believe that regenerative agriculture and all of the other things that we support are causes worth supporting. And I, I think this is where much of the inspiration for the, the growing staff at Dr. Bronner's, where much of this comes from, is there's credible causes mm. we support that people can relate to. And that helps you yeah. fight and overcome the chaos that oftentimes you know, it's, it's part of day-to-day -day business. Got, yeah. got, much, got much better, but I guess you were wondering how can we maintain the style of the company even though we've grown massively. I know, right? Because family and, you know, treating our employees as family, I know, is one of the 
six cosmic principles and I'll share those principles in the show notes because I think it's just I've 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 seen a lot of mission statements a lot of values I've heard people talk about their values and very rarely do you actually see what's on the door match up with what's behind the door and everywhere behind that yep. door and uh, and yep. it was honestly one of the first times in my life that I went wow this is actually everything checks out everything um, so how do they, how do you feel as a member of that company that they nail that family piece as they grow? Is it because people are hired based on that cultural fit of fighting for a cause as much as being good at those jobs? Not, not, this used to be the case until maybe 2010 recruitment mm-hmm. was largely from within or from a pool of friends. Many yeah. of them were friends from the hemp scene. And as we grew, I think when I started, we were 50 and now we're 200 some. And so we've had massive growth. So in, in the long run, you can't just recruit from within. And if you recruit, you look for skills mostly, but of course you also look at whether that person would fit and would be open to the kind of culture we have. Now that, that culture, there isn't anything particularly strange we do except you know, we've got a whole department that just goes around in a fire truck and sprays. <laughs> I've been in that fire truck. School. It's so fun. It's it's an it's an unbelievable activity. You know, yeah. it's 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 part of part of the business. But that's that's not what gets people too excited. It's it's mm. for one. It's a, there's a lack of formality, right? So that that really helps. That that adds to the family feel. But I believe, and the company treats us super fairly. If you look at compensation, if you look at benefits, health insurance, there's just a lot of benefits you don't get in the United States that easily. Definitely not the size company we are. Mm. So that's number one. That helps. That gives you a sense that you're part of a family. But I, I believe a really strong factor, maybe the strongest, is that there's a sense of a common destiny and of common causes. I I really think this is what drives many of us. And I, I can't speak for production so much because I don't know production workers that much. I, I relate to some of the supervisors in production, but my Spanish isn't good enough. <laughs> I know. But, I, I, like I really had to pull out my university Spanish chatting to people. It was, yeah, you, it was good. You have- you have to do that. Yeah. And so it's a little difficult to, to gauge what the spirit is in, in production. But from all I hear, there, there is cohesion there much more than you would see elsewhere. And if I look at how conflicts are dealt with in the company, which arise, you know, there's territorial conflicts. You, you can't avoid those. I just look at how they're dealt with mm. and how there, there is just a, a common sense of destiny that outweighs mostly the personal battles and conflicts that people may have. Mm. And I, I think that's a big part of it. And then again, you're, you're pretty close to your, your bosses and that is family. And it's, yeah. it's not done. It's not artificial. It, you just relate to, to people and it just, it's in real life, but added to that are just a whole bunch of causes that at least one of them, all of the staff feel strongly about that's the other beauty right there's a whole range of causes we support massively right we spend i think seven to eight percent of revenue on activism and charity mm. 
No, nobody does that. Usually, no. <laughs> nice people do one or two percent, right? We do yeah. seven, seven, eight. That's massive, and we do it in a very effective way. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's it's pretty cool. This is the the one thing that that has impressed me always is just to what extent the company really does what it preaches and how strategic they are. And that's that's David. He, mm. He's just a, a master. And and Mike has picked up. Um, as much and supports many of the causes and introduces others and truly is very supportive of, of things that traditionally would not expect from from somebody like, like her, mm. you know, somewhat, somewhat conservative, very reliable um, to support causes like support it's really encouraging to see that that kind of consistency uh, throughout the the upper management mm, it's incredible and I think I remember when Lisa was t talking me through pay structures and how the best paid person in the whole company you know like the president of the company is never going to earn more than the worst paid person by five times like yep. I, mean, I mean that is how you keep a middle class thriving right there that is yep. basic like societal functioning economics it, that is it, sustainable it is it it is it's it's really simple you mm. just cap you cap the salaries you have a ratio there's no dividend paid mm. you're, you're super profitable and you just end up with a lot of cash mm. it, it it sounds it sounds trivial and many other companies would be able to do this there's, i don't think there's anybody who does it as consistently and with so much determination as as we do but it's yeah so you create a middle class by, yeah. by doing this. It's, 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 it's pretty encouraging to see a company actually act on those principles. And those were really principles introduced by David's and Mike's parents, not so much the grandfather. He was the visionary. It was more Trudy and her, her late husband, Jim, mm. who converted this into action. This happened in the 90s, yeah. largely. They, they laid the foundation for a real company and thus the foundation for growth and then it was Mike and David taken over and they just taking their grandfather's ideals mm. but just, just framing them in a somewhat more digestible way yes you know old, old grandfather Emmanuel had a way had the way of, a, of an old German professor I mm. sure can relate to that <laughs> just the way just just the way he just gave monologues and, and speeches and David and Mike are, are different you know they, they look into communication they're much more effective in, in how they bring on you know allies in their various battles so they they took the lead from their grandfather but they sure use modern technology and, and just maybe more openness than yeah than Emmanuel did. So they, they stuck really with the basic concept and then just translated it into something more modern and broader mm. and and more attractive. Well, something that wasn't so much about the guru, but, you know, all mankind, which was, funnily yep. enough, what Emmanuel wanted, but wasn't the person to actually put it into action, it sounds like. That was yep. the job for the next generation and then the next generation to refine it again and that's what i think makes yep. them so unique it's 
Yep. It's really just beautiful to see how that whole thing has unfolded from, you know, crazy monologues in, in um, town squares trying to get everybody to stay, so writing it on yep. the soap. I mean, it's beautiful. Yep. Yeah, so good. It, it is. Mm. It, it's all true. It's, it's just an amazing, to me, it's, it's one of the most amazing company histories I've, I've seen. And since I'm, I'm pretty close to the, the relevant individuals and, and also to many others, and I just feel people's pulse, I, I get the... I get to cross-pollinate. This is the thing I really like about my job. I get to work with people across many departments mm. on sort of an equal level, right? They don't report to me. I don't report to them. So you just need to build partnerships. Yeah, that, that's absolutely. the nature of my work. And I, I really like this. This, is, this just gives me a sense of what people feel and what gets them excited. And I've just never seen anything like this. Mm. Oh, well, it makes work collaborative instead of have to. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it, it does. You have no choice. You need to make it collaborative. You just don't want to be pissed at people mm. for too long. There's conflicts, no doubt, but there is just an unspoken commitment to being collaborative and work out problems to the extent you can. Mm. And that is that's that's rather different. Yeah. Elsewhere. And in terms of those collaborations and partnerships, um, one of the things that I um, was curious about when I first started talking um, to Lisa was about how you guys have tackled palm oil. Now, palm oil is obviously a super useful um, green chemistry, if you like, uh, ingredient, uh, very um, effective and very good for formulations, especially for things like soaps. Um, mm -hmm. So, but obviously everyone associates palm oil with huge destruction of forests and orangutan population death and, and um, and I just I'd be quite interested to see how you can um, help people not be so panicked and start to really think you know just like when we go to the markets all about knowing our farmer it's all about knowing where everything comes from because there is a way to do this right. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the Surrender Palm project? Mm -hmm. It's um, it, it's right now it's my. It's my favorite because of the way it's developed over the last uh, 11 years. So when we started, we simply needed palm oil because that is an ingredient mm. we use only in the bar soaps. And it was not about being cheap. Many people just think that, that palm oil is being used because it's cheap. It is. But that's not the reason it's often used. It's also a super versatile mm. and useful ingredient. And what, what many people don't understand is that the, the problem with palm oil is not the oil itself, but it's the way that the vast majority of palm oil on the planet is being produced, which is in huge plantations that are planted after what was there before had just been destroyed, both vegetation as well as um, the, the communities who lived on that land. That, that's the common story. It's not always like this, but very often under the most brutal condition. Indonesia is just a really bad example of just flaring down, yeah. you know, old growth forest and then just planting. Many people, they, they know that it's done on plantations, but they don't know that that's the cause why it's, it's bad. And so we didn't set out to show that palm oil is cool. We just wanted to have organic and fat rate palm oil. And in the United States, the awareness of the palm oil issue isn't 
nearly as strong as it is in Europe. How do I know? Mm. Because we were just three years into the project, we were contacted by Rapunzel, which is Germany's largest organic brand. Mm -hmm. And they've been using palm oil in their chocolate spread. And they, they're organic, so they've been buying organic palm oil. Unfortunately, the sources of organic palm oil had just come under attack. Some of it was plantation. The operation also had some, some funny behavior towards the, the few smallholder farmers. So they were looking for an organic and fair trade source and came to us. And they did this because we made organic and fair trade palm oil and because they thought the way we do this with um, you know, a pretty simple mill technology and then just employment for some 200 unskilled women. That, that was one of the biggest impacts we had on the ground is just to give employment for manual work. So Rapunzel liked that concept. They started buying it. Now, they, and, and we're pretty expensive, right? So palm oil is cheap when you do it in large plantations and have big mills. Well, we don't. Our, our cost structure and the the relatively high manual contribution just makes our oil, I always say, the, the most expensive palm oil on the planet. But people pay for that because it allows them to show that palm oil is actually a pretty cool product if it's done the right way, which is in small holdings under ecological conditions and processed in a community-friendly way. So those are the terms one would use. So we've built up huge visibility and respect for the project simply by not having a, a plantation and by processing in, in a community-based operation. So it, it's more in Germany, that was my point, where we have been, been used to show that palm oil actually can be done in a sustainable and responsible way. Mm. I, I once or twice a year, I speak at, you know, events in, in Germany. Oftentimes it's Rapunzel who just wants to show off where they purchase their palm oil and that it's produced. I'd, I'd say this is probably the best palm oil project on the planet with the only little bitterness is that the oil is just naturally a little expensive and we're also pushing for efficiencies there, but we've, we've demonstrated, and people like seeing this, we've demonstrated that if you grow oil palm on smaller plots, pay farmers properly, don't tear down and burn down their villages, palm oil is pretty cool. So it, it's been, it's a lot of fun to go to an audience in Germany, you know, organic consumers, and then you tell them, you know, palm oil actually is a pretty cool crop. And then you have people who argue, Germans like arguing. <laughs> and you, you always win because I, I've got the evidence and the photos and everything. So I really enjoy that part is to confront people with their own stereotypes. It's not to say that palm oil is a huge problem worldwide. But to say, okay, we're buying palm oil free that, that's, that's nonsense. That makes no bloody difference. What makes sense is to buy palm oil from better sources. So we produce that. There's other organic and fat rate projects emerging. So there's this potential to, um, to have palm oil-based uh, products that are not produced at the expense 
of people and the environment and producer countries. But mm. it's just it's a lot of fun to to be against the flow. Yes, challenge and that status quo. Just, and, yeah. Exactly. Mm. Just challenge it and show you can do it. And the dynamic agroforestry, again, this is what we want to do in Ghana in the next few years because our farmers also grow cocoa. And so far it's cocoa and all palm mono, small crops, you know, two hectares, three hectares. Usually it's a patchwork. It's not a plantation. It's a patchwork. But we are super convinced that replanting, farmers need to replant. Usually after 20 years, the palm, the oil palms are not that productive anymore. So to replant that land in dynamic agroforestry, mixed agroforestry, that the diversify the range of products farmers mm. grow is is that just, the essence of dynamic agroforestry yeah. for people it's, who don't haven't come across that before it's it's really the dynamic agroforestry there's there's a couple of benefits the first one for the farmer is you you put fewer plants of the same species in there so example usually you plant about 150 oil palms per hectare in a regular plantation. If you do dynamic agroforestry, you may plant only 80 or 90 per hectare. But at the same time, you have another thousand cocoa plants, you put in fruit trees, you put in timber trees. So once you tally it all up, your number of trees per hectare is two to three to four times as high as it would be with just oil palm. The trick is to make sure that plants don't compete for light. And that's really how jungles develop. How, how, um, that's the jungle, jungle, it's the rainforest, it's everything, it's, right? That's, yeah. that's how they develop. When nature does it itself, that's what you see. Exactly. Mm. In this case, you have to help nature along. You just need to plan a little bit because you know you put the cocoa there. Cocoa can handle shade, the oil palm cannot. So you just need to make sure that you have, you, you juxtapose the right um, tree species next to each other. So you squeeze much more activity into the same hectare and your yields, your economic yields are two to three times what you would have with a monocrop. So that's nice for the farmer. Second, you have a much higher level of biodiversity. And as a result, your pest pressure, which is usually a function of, of a monoculture, monocultures are much more prone to that. So you reduce pest pressure, that's nice. And then on top of that, so you sequester carbon and increasingly, you know, this concept of creating um, carbon credits pops up. So that's an additional economic incentive. For, the, farmer, for the local farmers, yeah. For the local farmers. What it also does is it makes the farmer more resilient. So rather than having just a single crop that peaks during a particular time of the year, you have income spread over a larger period. And mm. if there's volatility in the market and prices go down, well, you don't have 100% of your eggs in one basket. Yeah. That's another important aspect. It does require, though, that there are markets for all these products. So that's part of our job is to make sure that when we get farmers to plant, you know, five, six different crops, that there's markets for it. And so with oil palm and cocoa, Dr. Bronner's bicycles are rather some of our other customers that right. I, I support, palm oil too, they buy cocoa, for instance. Uh -huh. And do you and guys want... go into 
business with these local farmers? Is it a, a, a totally yeah. joint financial venture? No, we, we buy from them. Okay, so the right. Farm, so, but you do help set them up, though. We, we, we organize farmers to become organic. This we we bear all the cost of that, right? right so yeah, we I was help say. farmers mm. convert to organic practices. We pay for all of it. We pay for the uh, inspection certification. The farmers don't have ownership, except for their land, right? So we never have land mm-hmm. other than those two small farms we set up in Ghana for demonstration, but the land is owned by the smallholders. Yeah. We set up processing operations because that's gotcha. something that requires skill and professional management. And there we have local partners, mm-hmm. sometimes being, no, actually in all cases, being minority shareholders. That makes sense. Not the farmers, though. That's, you know, that's a, a nice idea is to have co-ops and you can do that with coffee, but you can't really do this with palm oil or with coconut oil. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much about the ownership. It's rather supporting farmers in developing the productivity of the land. And, of course, then being able to negotiate prices and help decide what fair trade projects are done. But the control of the actual plant, we, we retain. And I th- think that's a pretty wise, wise move to do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. And then they're able to then sell to other people as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah we're, we're open. It's you, you don't really like closed systems. Mm. But what we need to do is we need to outcompete other buyers. In most settings, there's other people who buy palm fruits and, and coconuts and cocoa. So the pressure is on us, is on Dr. Bronner's sister companies to provide the farmer the best deal. Mm. And it's kind of, so that means we pay the best price, of course. So that, that's one reason. And second, we're the nicest. We, <laughs> we actually hang so out yourself. with farmers. Yeah. Well, it's, we do Christmas parties. Uh, that's just one thing, but we train, right? We spend a lot of time on training. We love getting together with farmers and arguing. So this kind of attention, farmers usually do not get. Yeah. The kind of support in improving their own resources. And I, I think this works. Yeah. Initially, it's always taken two or three years to get to that point where farmers take you serious. But, you know, buying something and paying for it and employing people is a very powerful tool in mm. development. And that's, I, I think, what Fairtrade does is mostly it's the development of resources in a fair way. So the fair price is just one element of, of Fairtrade. So I've, I've come to realize Fairtrade is simply rural development and it, it should just be a common practice it makes sense you don't screw your your partner mm. and, and to, you try to contribute to their development in your own best interest absolutely and many people don't do that it's just much more fun this way not mm. to say not to say that you wouldn't have arguments with farmers or some farmers let's just call it idiots and many people are so you don't want to glorify farmers either, but if they are partners, you just treat them as partners. And that means you think about their community and what can you do to improve things. A, it's more fun, and B, you just have long-term friends. Yeah. It's just, it's a good investment. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've seen come up time and again, whether we're talking about Surrender Pole in Sri Lanka with the coconut oil or the Samoan coconut oil project, um, that you talk not only about the regenerative organic agricultural aspect and healing the land but you also talk about 
preserving their local culture and enriching their local communities. So, um, you know, I, I love that you've said that it's fun and, it's, you know, these partnerships are awesome. But in terms of what you've seen on the ground, what, like, you know, all this groundwork you guys have done to set all of this up so that you have great people to buy from and i mean the byproduct for them of preserving their culture and enriching their community that must be a pretty amazing thing to look around and go wow we we helped we helped preserve this we helped continue this it it's it's pretty rewarding when you see that and when you get feedback on the ground so you know the opening ceremonies so we we've put in a maternity ward in, in Assum in, in Ghana that was needed. Actually, mm. Dr. Bronner's, we did a, a, a crowdfunding campaign and Dr. Bronner's kicked in quite some money. It was only $80,000 for a whole maternity ward. Wow. It, was, it was pretty cheap, but you get this done and then the opening ceremonies are always cool, right? So the whole, the whole range of local honoraries shows up and uh, the, um, dignitaries shows up and there, there's just games and 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 great mood and it's just kind of nice to get the the feedback from people because usually companies don't don't do that uh, to gauge that way in terms of culture i guess it it's tricky you know in many developing countries they've they've undergone serious cultural changes and everybody has cell phones now and there's a lot of trash on the ground so there's lots of things to be done but there is of course there's an inherent culture and i guess what we're trying to do is to to allow rural rural life to survive and keep it attractive meaning that we want to give people opportunities to stay in the country rather than just all going off to the capital yes. and just getting involved in, in some trade. And that's, 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 I think, where preserving culture comes in, is that you allow people to, to live in villages or in towns and make a living there instead of having to go to the city. And this this is a, a pretty big achievement we've had. So you don't lose farmers. They stay there because they can make money. Mm. As big an achievement has it been to bring in Ghana. We've now got some 20 professionals working at the project. So those are accountants, engineers, agricultural engineers, uh, technicians. Mm -hmm. So they come, almost all of them come from, from the city. So how do you get them to come to the countryside? Well, you have to offer them jobs that pay reasonably well. But then you realize they start having kids. You know, most of them are in their 30s, the management yeah. team. And they start making, building families and houses. And they think that, a, that you know, a godforsaken place like Assume in the middle of nowhere, that that's a place where you want to grow a family. Well, that's a pretty nice sign. It shows that... People actually like living in the countryside mm. if there's something meaningful to do. And this is, I, I keep pointing this out as one of our major achievements is to bring professionals back from the city to the countryside because they think there's something meaningful to do. They got great standing in the community and the churches and mosques they go to, right? It's, mm. they're, they're just working for the coolest company in, in town. And don't want to glorify it. There's conflicts. The guys at the bank sometimes are idiots. You know, you have to 
sometimes you have to deal with it's not without neighbors. its challenges yeah no it's, yeah. it's not at all that would be we're not in a paradise right mm. this is this is a poorly developed place with lots of room for improvement still but there is just a sense that you are able to get people to come back or to stay there and contribute to um, sustainable develop sustainable is a bad word I, I don't it, it doesn't mean much but it's it just developing an area in 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 a style that just doesn't mess up the environment altogether allows a broader we build a middle class as you said before yeah, I, yeah. I this is part of what we do is we start building a middle class or even poor people like uh, single moms without education they are treated with respect. There's social benefits, which they would never get in any other operation like, like ours. And it just allows, I, th I think it's self-respect and dignity and, and just survival, you know. It allows them to send their kids to school or preschool. So it just you, you just become a little bit of a patron mm. of the town, but you're driven by business. It's about business, yeah. right? We just, we buy things. We produce things and we employ people. And then around it, we just do all kinds of other things. <laughs> lots and lots of things. Speaking of doing lots, things. Lots of, um, yeah, lots of yeah. What are you guys doing for Fair Trade Day? What does the, is there a, a punctuation of sorts um, at Dr. Bronner's HQ? It's, it's been... It's funny. I should know, but I, it, I don't. <laughs> Am I putting you on the spot? Is David going to no, listen but... to this and go, "Man, you should have told them about"? Oh, oh he's he's already. David is always ten yards ahead. No, so what what we what we've been doing the last few years, and this is a nice example. We've joined forces with other what we call committed fair trade companies, meaning companies that don't just have one fair trade certified product and the rest is crap, but rather companies that share our philosophy that you know the way they buy their raw materials should be based on on fair and sustainable practices so there's a bunch of such companies so we've had fair trade week basically a joint event where you get major retailers to participate and then you just have displays and and um, end caps where you present the products of those companies and get the consumer to realize fair trade is more than coffee mm. And chocolate. So that's what we've been doing, I think, the last five or six years. But don't ask me what we're doing this year. This is really the marketing department. So <laughs> I usually help get photos or so. But for, for now, I'd rather do interviews. You know, it's easier. Talk, talk is cheap. You know? <laughs> talk is <It's> cheap. A... <laughs> You're safe here with me. It's all good. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, that's what we've been doing in the past, but it's also, it, it's funny for, for us, fair trade almost becomes the baseline. Mm. I always joke that we're just beyond fair trade. We're way past it in Germany. We talk about fair trade 2.0, and, and it's just to, to signal that we're not stuck with this idea that well, once once we do everything in fair trade, there's nothing else we have to do. Like, that's not Dr. Bronner. So the next goal is just around the corner. David is already ahead. He runs into regeneration and who knows what's going to be next. <laughs> so fair trade is sort of the baseline. Yeah. This is this is how we operate. And there's always an interesting new concepts you add to that. But we would never go fall back behind. 
no. fair trade standards were certified by it and we talk about fair trade but i've been using the term less and less because it's not it doesn't fully describe what we do anymore this discussions in the company you know should we still call it fair trade or, or what and I, I don't care so much. I, I'm more interested in the reality we're creating, and that is super exciting. Whatever, whatever the word is, mm, it, it's absolutely. definitely it's best. It's really community development in developing countries, covering all aspects: farms, production workers, and and the community at large. Yeah, and so the, and what communities need to function well and safely. It's it's that. The, the latest thing we're, we're just working on, you know, we've got among our staff in Ghana, there's a, about, a, I think, 90 kids and grandchildren that require preschool, in preschool age. So they require preschool education and the local preschools, they suck. And so we were approached by some of the staff and they said, well, can't we just have like a Montessori preschool? And we thought about it for a little bit. And so for the last year, we've been planning the architecture. I need to get fundraising now. So we're going to put together, we're going to call it regenerative campus. So it's got to be regenerative, of course, but it's basically a, a Montessori preschool. Wow. Where we have um, just conditions that are conducive to developing, to have children develop, which often they don't. There's not a lot of playing going on, for instance, in, mm. in Ghana. Really open and curious kids but they lose that curiosity over time because schools are not that great so we, we just think that you know giving them a few years of a few formative years where they're encouraged to develop to think to question to experience nature it can make a pretty big difference so we're getting ready to, to start building the, the preschool and then there'll be a guest house because we increasingly get visitors so they can see the regenerative miracle, so to speak. Yeah. And that's our next next little project here. That'll, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, incredible. Amazing. So much great work being shared. Thank you so much for all of that. And I think we could literally talk for hours, and we have, given we've been at yeah, it for yeah. nearly two hours. Um, yeah. But the guys, will, the guys will know to make a little cup of tea, have a break, uh, sit back down. That's all good. Yep. Um, but I would love to finish with one last question, and that is if you were to tell someone to change just three daily habits to build a better future for our children and, uh, and the planet they're inheriting, what would you prioritize to tell them in terms of what those changes you believe they should be? So I, I saw that question just before we got started, and I thought, damn, I can't come up with three, but I've got two. <laughs> okay, I've, good. I've, I've got two. Hit me. So no, number one, don't don't eat so much meat, and mm -hmm. if you do, just just make sure you know the source more or less. Yes. That that actually does have a major impact, and it's not it's not health primarily, in my opinion. It's a combination of of animal welfare, which is is a terrible disaster in. Huge. in meat production in, in northern countries primarily mm. and you can actually support if animals are raised properly it can actually make a little contribution to regenerative agriculture so i think oh they can be part of the of, solution right they, yeah they, they, they can it's mm. really funny to hear david talk about it you know he's vegan mm. and he gets attacked for promoting oh i could imagine his vegan it's, re it's really it's really interesting upset, so he, yes. he doesn't he doesn't care he doesn't eat meat but he says if people want to eat meat well at least it's got to be produced in a proper way so that's one and then the second one would be 
just be open. I, I think openness, as we discussed before, I think it's a pretty good, it's a really good concept that will hopefully help prevent a, a couple of little wars here and there over time and, and just allow us to be a little more cooperative because I, I think we're, we're not the worst species overall as humans. I think we've got pretty great potential, mm. but just a little bit of openness to what others have to say, for instance, or to what the environment looks like if you're dropped off somewhere in the jungle. I think openness is, is a pretty good concept. So what, whatever one can do to increase openness, you know, have an open heart and mind, I think that's a good idea. And so I think those two things are good enough. Don't, don't eat three. I think those two, <laughs> just eat, eat the right kind of meat and just be open. I think that'll do it. I think that's a pretty good pretty good lot to get started on. Gero, I would. thank you so much uh, for sharing so many beautiful insights into not only uh, Dr. Bronner, but um, some amazing um, agricultural principles, ways that we can regenerate communities, not just land. I think it's just been a fascinating discussion and I really um, thank you for being so generous with your information and time. Oh, I, I, really, I really enjoyed it. You, you, I liked your questions. You really made me think. Oh, and good. Um, it's 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 nice it's nice to get this to get this kind of feedback so i i look forward to hearing what you turn this lengthy conversation into <laughs> and it will be turned into something wonderful thank you so much once again i'm sure Okay, we'll be in touch. Well, that's another show done. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Always so much inspiration from our beautiful guests. And I just want to take a minute to say thank you for taking the time to leave a review for our show because it helps us stay visible and helps other people who maybe haven't discovered it yet go, ooh, that looks like it might be worth a look. So if the show has provided value to you, there's nothing you can do to thank me more than to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access the show from. So what you do is you just search generally in the podcast app. Don't be in the list of shows because you won't be able to leave a review there. So once you've searched generally, you'll see the tile come up and you click on that tile and then a little set of tabs will come up and the middle one is called review. And from there, you can click it, star rate it and leave a review. And I appreciate that so much. Now, if you want to connect with the rest of the Lotox Life community, we're over on Instagram at Lotox Life or on the main website uh, where there are a whole bunch of recipes, some incredible e-learning opportunities depending on what your Lotox goals are. And that is www.lotoxlife.com. And of course, if you want to check out the podcast show notes, you just do forward slash podcast and everything's there. So I look forward to continuing our chats in between shows online in the community. Mm-hmm.